Hello, and welcome to the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Craig Dale, the Head of Policy and Research at Commonweal. And I promise you, after last week's podcast, this week will be a little more lighthearted. An important, if understated, undervalued, often frustrating, sometimes revealing part of political engagement is the process of responding to public consultations. The Scottish Government must issue a consultation every time it proposes new legislation or wants to make changes to existing legislation. The same is true for backbench and opposition MSPs who wish to present a member's bill, for instance. The Scottish Government also increasingly has made use of consultations simply to canvas opinion or to make a call for views and ideas that it's floating about. There are far too many for groups like us to respond to, especially groups like Commonweal who have a broad area of interest, but we do try, as it's part of our mandate, to lobby government. We certainly don't want a lack of response to be held against us later when we're talking to ministers. My guest this week is our own Nicola Biggerstaff, here to chat about our experiences with consultations that we're working on right now. Hello, Nicola. Great to have you back on the show. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. So just to start, let's talk about the consultations that you personally have been working on. Uh, First, the Ecoside Bill. Uh, Can you tell us about this bill, where it came from and where we stand with it? Yeah, so this is part of a larger international campaign to bring the crime of ecocide into the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court and have it essentially treated with the same severity as war crimes. And while this is important, a lot of people can feel rather distanced from international measures, as we've been seeing with a lot of other recent events. So knowing that there's something we can do domestically now by supporting this latest bill feels like a really positive step. So this is a private member's bill brought forward by Monica Lennon of Scottish Labour, looking to incorporate the international definition of ecocide into Scots law. Um, We do have an internationally agreed upon definition, which was coined by Stop Ecocide International in 2021, which defines ecocide as lawful or unlawful, sorry, or wanton acts committed with knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. So things like oil spills or intentionally set wildfires would be classed as ecocide to highlight the extent of the damage they caused to the environment here in Scotland. This bill would make the crime of ecocide in Scotland punishable by proportionate fines of 10% of corporate profits and or up to 15 to 20 years imprisonment. So where Commonweal stands with it, we're obviously in full support of any and all measures to tackle the climate emergency. We submitted our consultation response earlier this week expressing this and basically saying that to not legislate for ecocide would only prolong the harm caused by the climate emergency. So we think this is a positive step to ensuring more corporate accountability in terms of sustainability measures. That is an interesting thing to compare uh, ecocide to, for example, a war crime like genocide. Um, yeah. Because there, there, there might seem an even more indirect link to them. Uh, you can see when someone drops a bomb on a hospital and kills people, it's maybe less apparent if someone is polluting and causing smog that kills the same number of people and they've done it knowing that this would happen. So I can understand why it's it's, it's taken a bit longer to get people on board with this idea. But with the world now you know, having passed the 1.5 degree threshold that politicians promised we wouldn't pass, is that why this is so important yeah yeah we are we are starting to run out of time here um we really need to 
start to recognise that environmental harm does transcend borders. Um, so we can start here and then we can start to campaign on a more international level. This this is just the beginning. Um, we've got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, and it's uh, I always come back to the uh, the ideas that we we talked about in our common home plan and later and things like sorted that yes, the impact of pollution. Uh, transcends borders. Pollution anywhere affects everywhere, but the actual source of pollution is hyper-local. The pollution that is emitted here in Scotland that can be legislated against with bills like this you know, affects everywhere. Yeah. So, you're working on another couple of link consultations that are in a similar vein on environment and, and, and sustainability. You're, you're working on the recycling uh, consultation and one on the circular economy. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Um, yeah, so I say I'm working on the government's circular economy consultation, um, which is running until the 15th of March, which is basically asking for our thoughts on the government's route map to a circular economy by 2030. So it's their proposed their proposed measures for more effective reuse and recycling, reducing emissions, and supporting businesses through the transition. And I have actually been getting a little bit of, of I was um, trying to. Um, look at look at these again this morning, and I've actually found that the um, so the reducing, re uh, reusing and recycling um, consultation seems to be a part of the circular economy consultation, um, mm -hmm. and I actually found myself a little bit confused because <laughs> um, I had I had myself believing that I was going to be responding to two separate but similar consultations. Um, Either either way, um, yeah. they're both yeah. it's both Commonwealth policy, and as we've been saying, time's running out. It's really important that we get this right now. Um, we don't have a lot of time left to reverse the effects of the climate emergency. We've already passed the one and a half degree threshold, like you said. Um, and some commentators are even saying that twenty thirty might even be a bit too late. So we just have to keep pushing that Commonwealth message that the solutions are out there, but we have them. And we are willing to talk to anyone in government or not in government who's willing to listen and take these on board. Mm. Yeah, when I first looked at looked at the consultation, I thought there were two separate things as well. I, I wonder if maybe they've been combined since the last time we looked at them, which um, <laughs> wouldn't be the first time Scottish government's changed uh, moved to goalposts uh, <laughs> on a consultation. So either way, yeah, we'll get our views in on this. Because uh, for me, it, it's been good to see that Scottish government has finally started to see that the circular economy is a much broader and more comprehensive thing than they did previously. Previously, they did look at the circular economy as well, if we just recycle a bit more, then that's circular, isn't it? Um, but it's not. I mean, recycling is a part of this, but it's much more. It's about the, the redesigning products so that they don't produce waste in the first place. Uh, mm. It's about reusing products so they don't go to the recycling phase. It's about making sure that instead of non-biodegradable plastics, we can put some of our waste in the compost heap and get rid of it that way. Um, so it's not just recycling, although recycling is a part of that. So it'd be interesting to see how our thoughts develop on this as we as we engage. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So uh, I, I'm an old hand at this and we'll talk about, about this um, uh, a bit later in the podcast. You're a little bit newer to the idea of, of responding to consultations. How are you finding the actual process uh, of even, even not just answering the questions and working out how they fit into common real policy, but just the technical side of 
finding the consultations on the Scottish Scottish government website. These are supposed to be easily accept, accessible to the whole public, are they? Um, yeah, I found it's kind of a. Um, I've had kind of two very different experiences so far. So the Ecoside Bill, um, I, as you say, I'm still fairly new to this. The Ecoside Bill was actually my first ever consultation response, not just personally, but on behalf of Commonweal as well. Um, I found the process with that one really, really simple. Um, but obviously, as a private member's bill, it's still in the early stages. So, of course, we'd expect it to be a little bit easier. Um, it was just a case of gathering um, gathering general thoughts. Um, it, the hardest thing, as you say, is just was just trying, just interpret, interpreting Commonwealth's policies to fit into the questions asked, which I imagine is an art that I'll get that I'll be getting on to perfect as the years go by. Um, and then I took one look at the government's circular economy consultation, and I just immediately got overwhelmed. As we're saying, there's a little bit of confusion as to whether um, it's one consultation or a separate one on reducing and recycling. There's several documents for both, which are dozens of pages long. I mean, the main, the main consultation document for the circular economy is over 100 pages. Mm. Now, that's fine for us. It's part of our job. But anyone that thinks George and public have the time or the energy to read through all of that for the sake of a consultation response is living in a dream world. And, you know, we, we know the Scottish government loves a consultation. They're a very important part of the democratic process. But... They say the whole point is to get everyone's views, canvas opinions, and it's turning into just the opinions of those who have the time and the energy, um, or in our case, those who are paid to do it. Mm. But that is a really slippery slope that we don't want to find ourselves down. Yeah, and even for those of us who are paid to do it, um, I mean, Commonweal is possibly one of the most prolific think tanks in Scotland in terms of our published output. Um, we set ourselves internally an informal rule of one report a month, uh, which is already way above what a lot of other think tanks put out. And in the time I've been working with Commonweal, we have never, never met that target. We've always vastly overshot it. We, we were something like 20 um, policy papers last, last year. I've, I've seen it go even higher than that. Looking at our policy schedule and including not just the policy papers that we're working on, which already meets that target, but only in January, adding the consultation responses in it, we've got about 35 documents that we could publish this year. It is it, it, it's just over, utterly overwhelming. Um, and, and, and as you say, we are paid to do this. But even if we just dumped all of our policy paperwork and only did consultation responses, we still couldn't respond to everything that falls within our remit. So yeah. it's, it's an impossible challenge. Yeah, it, it sounds like we've got a, got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, what what consultations are you working on at the moment? Mm, well, actually, moving away from Scotland, uh, it's a, a rare instance of uh, uh, us responding to a UK government consultation, Commonwealth, um, uh, mostly a Scotland-focused political group. Um, we, we don't really engage with the UK government, mostly because if it's difficult to talk to the Scottish government at times, it's impossible to talk to the UK government. I can at least arrange a meeting with a minister or a cabinet secretary in the Scottish government. Um, the, it's impossible to do that at UK level. Um so, so engaging with UK level politics is, 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 is extremely difficult. But we were put on to um, a, a consultation being done by the, the Economic Affairs Committee in the UK Parliament 
or asking the question, how sustainable is the UK's national debt? Wow. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so so you'll see our thoughts on that when 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 we publish that paper. That uh, it seems to me that there's still a lot of thought in the UK government that we need to reduce the debt, and they're using this as an excuse to hammer us with even more austerity. So I'm I'm a little bit worried about some of the questions they're asking in that. Um, it's also interesting. There's one question in that consultation about how how reliable have forecasts of nas- the national debt, debt been. And you go back and you look at the graphs of the, the, the forecast versus outturn, and they, I like to call them porcupine plots because the, you have this line, this curved line of what actually happened, and then all these spikes of the failed predictions coming off it. <laughs> it looks a bit like a porcupine. Basically, every single prediction is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is that something um, that we've done before? You say we don't engage all that much with the UK government. Um, what what kind of history do we have with um, consulting on UK government? Uh, it really is just a handful of consultations. Um, the, the last one I did for the UK government was uh, the consultation on bringing back imperial measures and dropping metric using oh, our, yeah. our new Brexit bonus powers. So I had a fair go um, dismantling their arguments there. And that was quite quite funny because something like 98% of respondents to that consultation agreed with, with us and, and said that uh, going back to imperial measures was a stupid idea. Uh, so the UK government was eventually forced to back down uh, in large part, although they didn't, did bring back pints of wine. Yay. <laughs> Got the priorities straight there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, previous to that, the, the I think the one of the very few other consultations we've done at UK level was um, on back in twenty seventeen when the UK government was considering dropping uh, feed in tariffs for solar panels. We warned that this would be a would be absolutely catastrophic. It would lead to uh, people stopping installing solar panels on their on their roofs. Uh, solar panels at the time were still quite expensive, and the feed in tariffs were a necessary subsidy. And uh, we were borne out uh, that we lost something like three years worth of installations after those feed-in tariffs were dropped. The the, the industry's only just starting to pick up again. It looks as if it might go into another bubble because uh, there's there's problems in the global solar panel supply chain. So all this talk about climate uh, climate aversions, we're just not doing it right. We're not getting that green energy transition happening, uh, whether at mass scale or even down at the home level. So, what do you know? What the rest of the team have been looking at? What what else has um, Commonwealth been getting up to hmm. in terms of consultation? Yeah, so we've got a couple of consultations that are that are quite eminent. Um, Rory has been working on uh, a consultation called Democracy Matters, uh, which is about the the Scottish government's plans for improving local democracy in Scotland. Now, this is this 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 are calling the next phase of a broader scale of of, of consultation, um, but quite frankly, everything we said in the previous phase they haven't done yet, <laughs> so it's going to be quite difficult for us to respond to that uh, in the sense that they haven't listened to any of the recommendations previous. So, why are you asking us again? Kind of thing. <laughs> uh, essentially, it looks like they're trying to come up with fairly drop in ad hoc committees and many citizens assemblies to maybe get a little bit more decision power at local local government level there's very little talk of resources 
how how do these how do these groups actually fund the decisions they want to make? Um, there's certainly no talk of tax powers at a local level, um, and quite frankly, there's no talk about just doing what everywhere in Europe considers normal, which is municipal councils, town councils. Uh, we still have the largest, uh, largest quote unquote local democracy in uh, in Europe because we don't have that hyper local municipal level government. Do that. And you don't need these little drop-in plans that the Scottish government is, is suggesting. So that's going to be quite a, a wide range and quite detailed um, consultation. Uh, some uh, another one that Caitlin is working on uh, is one that's actually quite close to my heart is uh, the languages bill that's coming forward to to bring both Scot the Scots language and Gaelic um, up to e equal legal footing and to make them official languages of Scotland. Right now they have a, have a slightly weaker status as as native or indigenous languages, um, but they, they don't have the, the full legal status that English has in Scotland. Um, there's various ways that the Scottish government could do this. One of the things that, that I personally would like to see is simply copying what happens in the EU. The EU has a list of official languages, um, EU obviously is a multilingual block and all the member countries have to be able to communicate with each other rather than having one pan-European language that that, uh, that that unites the entire block or one trading language. What happens is every single person in the EU has the right to engage with, with EU institutions in any of the official languages and they can expect a response in that language. So this would, for example... Uh, allow a Gaelic speaker to stand up in the Scottish Parliament and give a speech in Gaelic, and it would be translated for everyone in the chamber who does not speak Gaelic. Or, or if they preferred, another speech in English would be translated for them. You, as a citizen, would, would be able to respond to a government consultation in Scots. Uh, you could expect to see legislation translated into Scots. And this this helps, helps democracy and it helps our, our Basically, preserving our culture and 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 uh, not elevating any uh, any one part of that above the other. So that's that's going to be quite a quite a good bill, and I'm really really interested to see our response um, and other responses as well. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, um, other ones that I've I, I'm going to be working on. Um, there's there's one that's that kind of came out of of nowhere, um, which is a a, a consultation on. It's going to be a bit technical here, and I apologise. Um, creating a strategic framework for commissioners in the Scottish government. Now, uh, you, you might have heard yeah, of things like the child, the, the commissioner for children, or there's a proposal yeah. for a commissioner for older people. And we we responded to that consultation uh, not that long ago. But you're starting to see these commissioners pop up all over the Scottish government. All have their remit to lobby government on a particular issue. They often have a very similar remit to government ministers. So you have a minister for ch uh, for children's issues, and you have a commissioner for children's issues. The difference is, the minister is a democratically elected position, or at least appointed by the the, the government that is directed directly. Um, uh, uh, directly elected. The commissioners are appointed, sometimes mm -hmm. by the government, but sometimes approved by the parliament. The, 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 the structure can be a bit fuzzy. Um, so when we were responding to the, old, the proposal for an older people's commissioner, which itself came out of the fact that the Scottish government had got rid of the minister for older people, 
um, we we called for a, a consultation or inquiry into creating this proper institutional framework for how commissioners are appointed, how they're managed, how they uh, what their remit is, and how they're fired. Basically, <laughs> Tony Benn's uh, uh, seven questions about power. The, the most important one is how do we get rid of you? Um, so we we put that out as a suggestion and. I don't know if uh, if it was just us that said it, but uh, a couple of, couple of months later, this this consultation appears saying, "Oh yeah, we're going to look at that." So that's that's on my my plate to to look at a little a little yeah. later in this month. Yeah, you you have been doing this for a lot for a lot longer than the rest of us, and <laughs> um, being be able to see that um those those changes that influence that must mm. that must be really really satisfying to see. Oh, as I mean, uh, sometimes you 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 respond to a consultation, and you 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 get the final report back, and you're <laughs> you're 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 searching for the the words common wheel or the author's name, and you're looking for that one sentence where they've quoted uh, one of your responses, so that you can cheer about it and put a post out on Twitter. <laughs> um, but sometimes it does genuinely lead to a lot a lot more engagement, and we have seen. Um, Campaigns that started as a consultation response really bear fruit. Uh, the, the first one I was involved one with was the fracking campaign. Uh, mm-hmm. That consultation was uh, one of the large, at that time, it was the, the most responded to consultation in Scottish government history. Wow. Um, and that led to the moratorium on on on, on fracking. Um, so that was, a, that was a very, very good campaign to be involved in and see that all become a thing. Yeah, that's yeah, must be. Um, do do you have any tips or tricks for the rest of us who are just starting mm. out and um responding to consultations? Yeah, well, the first one is respond. The first one is get your view in, and, and even if it is just a one line, uh, to say that you agree or disagree with the overall statement, uh, that's probably the biggest thing. Uh, the the the. These consultations can be incredibly intimidating, but the the rule with all of them is you do not need to respond to all of the questions. People look at a hundred question consultation and they, they just, I don't know how to respond to all of these and they panic and they don't put a view in for anything. If all you do is respond to the first question, that's still a valid response. Um, so so that's, that's, that's really, really a big thing. The second one is, is to at least attempt to answer the questions. Um, I have seen consultations that uh, I have to say quite badly written consultations that rejected responses because they didn't technically answer the question. Um, uh, uh, infamous example of this was was actually last year with the consultation on freeports and the Scottish government's proposals to cut devolved taxes on the freeports. Now, most consultations will take the form of "Here is our proposal." Do you agree with it or do you disagree with it? Yeah. Right. This consultation did something different. Um, it, it said, here is our legislation for this devolved tax cut. Do you think this legislation as written will result in a tax cut? So it was like checking the spelling of the legal clerks in the parliament rather than actually responding to the views of the consultation. And that caught a lot of people out. I know... Um, most of the people who responded to that 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 consultation were like Freeport advocates, where the the the, the Freeport sector themselves or businesses involved in the Freeports. The the dissenters were folk like us. There were folk like the trade unions. 
I know that the STUC put in a response. I also know that that response was almost entirely rejected on because it didn't answer those questions. They went in with their response saying why they thought the tax cuts were a bad idea, why the, the idea the, the idea of free ports was going to be corrosive to human uh, human and workers' rights and all of these very valid arguments against the free ports didn't technically answer the question of does this will this legislation result in a tax cut? Uh, our response, which I wrote, did get accepted because I'm a pernickety wee bam <laughs> <laughs> and a bit of a pedant and also a massive geek. So I did answer the questions directly and then said why it was a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, you can't so, help so but wonder. Yeah. Sorry. No, carry on. Um, you can't help but wonder um, these consultations that are worded a certain way or a little bit too detailed, have a little too few too many questions. Mm. Can't help but wonder if perhaps the government's mind has already been made up and they're just looking for a little bit of validation. Mm. Oh, that, that that's a big thing with consultations. Quite a lot of consultations, the questions do take the form not of do you think this idea is a good idea, but do you agree with our proposal? Mm -hmm. uh, and and this is a, this this gets me to the, probably the third big tip or trick. Quite often you'll see a proposal and you'll see, uh, 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 and you'll think, well, yes, I generally agree with this, but I have some objections. I have some caveats, or here's some more detail you can put in. You have to be careful with those kinds of answers. Um, sometimes the answer might be yes, I agree with the principle, but everything you're doing to get there is wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I agree with circular economy, but circular economy is about more than recycling. So just focusing on a recycling target will not get, lead to a circular economy, for instance. Now, in those circumstances, I would always say never. If you're a, if you have a if you think your answer is going to be yes, but bunch of caveats. No, your answer is no because bunch of caveats. Mm -hmm. Because what tends to happen is the Scottish government will, will group all of the yeses with all of the yes buts and they will claim that as overwhelming support for the policy regardless of the caveats right you have to be quite careful with that one um the final one and it's one that we intentionally avoid doing but i see a lot of other uh, think tanks and advocacy groups doing is the so-called campaign response this is where you you put out a form letter um to, to all of your followers, your subscribers and the general public, and you say, right, this this idea is, is good or it's bad, please support it or reject it. Here's our form letter, just submit it. You don't need to do any work other than uh, email it in. And these these campaigns, they, they have their place and they're quite good for, for what they do. And they can lead to thousands of responses to consultations. But what happens often is the Scottish Government will take all of those letters, no matter how deep that stack is, and group it as one campaign response. Oh. So whenever we even tried to engage with our um, members and our supporters on, on a particular consultation, it's vitally important and we really want them to respond or we want you out there to respond to, we, 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 we try to publish our response ahead of time. It's not always possible. We're very busy. Um, the, the debt consultation I mentioned earlier, the deadline's tomorrow, so... And to get that in, um, and we try to put our, our our response for inspiration, but we never give people a form letter to put in because we want every single view to be counted individually yeah. and uniquely. So 
but no, that would be my, my top four tips and tricks. What would you say has been your worst experience with a consultation? Do you have any horror stories for us? Mm. Mm. Almost certainly that free porch consultation is the worst one. Uh, that that I, I've got nothing but condemnation for the way that was written. That should not have gone out as a consultation. We are not there to spell check your legislation for you. Um, the the one before that that had been my previous worst one uh, kind of serves to highlight the the need for people to understand consultations and to be engaged with them and to engage with them and get their responses in. This was several years ago. It was to do with the, the government's then proposal to cut air, air passenger duty. Air passenger mm -hmm. duty was a tax that looked as if it was going to get devolved. The Scottish government's um, policy at the time was to half air passenger duty and then get rid of it altogether. That would obviously lead to a lot more flying, which is a much, the, the most polluting form of transport possible. Um, we put in a response condemning it. The responses came uh, came back and we discovered that there were only two organisational responses that came from a group that was not linked to the airports or airline companies. It was us and Greenpeace. And Greenpeace's response was fairly narrow. They were they were concerned about the welfare of, of birds near airports. And that's fine. The response was valid and legitimate, but it was quite a narrow interest area. So that left Commonweal being lit you know, literally the only organisation who had responded to this consultation to say that the tax cuts were a bad idea. Everyone else was airport lobby or airline lobby saying, yes, please give us more profits. Yeah. Uh, that just... Yeah, it only highlights that um, we really do need as many people as possible engaging yeah. with these consultations. Um, but you know, it's it's understandable that people can get put off, whether it's by like we like we said earlier, um, just the sheer amount of prep that some people need to do. You know, the wording, the length of it can really put a lot of people off. Um, but do you, do you think there's maybe too many consultations out there? Do you think that would put people off as well? I mean, it, it can it can lead to consultation fatigue. Uh, I, I, we've talked about it here. Um, other organisations in our circles talk about it, uh, and, and we are the people who feel that we have a duty to respond to as many consultations as possible. But there's probably a reason why the public don't, or or they only respond to a consultation when it hits the news or really impacts them personally and really gets right in their face. But even then getting consulted again and again on the same issue can lead to that same fatigue. A good example of being our campaign around freedom of information. Um, I've submitted two consultation responses on freedom of information in the last six months. They were both essentially asking the same questions. Granted, one was a Scottish Government bill, one was a member's bill. So they were coming from different places. But they were asking the same questions, they were getting the same answers. And these were the same questions and answers that I had personally responded to in a free, in several FOI consultations several years previously. So it's not just the amount of consultations, it's the amount of repeat consultations. Especially mm -hmm. if the government's getting answers they don't like to hear, well, we'll make a wee tweak, put out another consultation. It just shoves everything down the line a bit more. Yeah. And eventually people get fatigued, they stop responding, and then that leads to the special interest lobbyists moving in. That's how you end up with the the air passenger duty on, uh, consultation only being responded to by the airline companies because everyone else is just too knackered to respond. I worry about that. 
Yeah. Yeah. It just it just shows how important they are, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's as I said in the intro, it's often frustrating. It's a lot of work. I mean, it's almost as even for a consultation that is taking an existing piece of policy work from Commonweal and translating it into what the what the consultation is 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 asking. It's a it is a lot of work. It's it can be several days worth of work to respond to a consultation. And you stick it in and maybe you get a couple of words in the final report acknowledging it. Yeah, that work. Maybe, just maybe, you might get invited to a, an evidence session at the Parliament to talk about your, your response in front of the MSPs. And even rarer still, you might actually change something. Um, but most of these consultations, you put them out into the ether and, and that's the last that's ever heard of, of them, apart from a, a line on a government website. So, it's a lot of work for seemingly nothing, but you know if the, that if you don't do it, the consequences are worse. So there's a lot of pressure to do this work that doesn't feel as if it's going to have impact, but just occasionally it does. Yeah. So, just, so despite all this, this yeah. despite everything we've talked about, say um, there's someone listening right now who we've managed to inspire and, he's, and they want to support a Commonwealth view in a consultation, or they maybe even want to submit their own. How how do they get involved? What's their first steps? Mm. So I'm going to stick a link to, in the description of the podcast that takes you to the main portal for the Scottish Government consultations. Um, that will show you all of the active consultations that are that are there just now. Um, there is a process to, to go through. You, you click, on, click on the one that interests you, and then gives you all of the background information to that legislation and why the consultation is there sometimes gives you that 100-page document with all the detail <laughs> in it. Um, but it also takes you to either a, a web, a, a Word document form that you can fill in or to a, a web portal that, that you can put your put your answers in there. Um, and, yeah, I encourage people to, to look at these consultations, put your responses in, and let us know what you're saying as well. Um, uh, also, let us know if you think you've spotted a consultation that we should be responding to that we haven't noticed yet because they keep popping up. We try to; we're all on the mailing list. We do try and keep up with these, but they do slip by us occasionally. Yeah. Um, so, if you see something and you, you you haven't heard us talking about it, and you think we should, let us know. Yes, please do. Please do. <laughs> so. Yeah, you managed to turn the tables on me in that interview, Nick. <laughs> we rare, um, <laughs> we rare outing for me and my views in this podcast. I should do it more often. But thank you for coming on, and and thanks for your work with the the, the consultations you're working on. It's it's you're you're doing a great job there. So long may it continue. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's been great. Yeah, brilliant. And I'll finish off the podcast as I always do by just reminding folk that Commonweal is entirely funded by our donors and supporters who give us an average of about £10 a month. So if you want to support our policy papers, our consultation responses, our broader campaigns and this podcast, then please click the donate link in the description of this show. Thanks again to Nicola. Thanks again to all my listeners. And I'll speak to you again next week. Bye.